Welcome to the Psych Central Show, where each episode presents an in-depth look at issues from the field of psychology and mental health, with host Gabe Howard and co-host Vincent M. Wales. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of the Psych Central Show podcast. My name is Gabe Howard, and with me, as always, is Vincent M. Wales. Our guest this week is Dr. Linda Myers, who earned advanced degrees in the 1970s. And we bring that up not to, you know, give away her age because we would never do that, but because we're going to be talking about how difficult it was for a woman to get advanced degrees, well, in the 1970s. She's written a great book. She has great stories to tell. And we're just, we're very excited that you're here, Dr. Myers. How are you? I'm fine, thank you. I have I have one little correction to make. Please. And and that is that I received my doctorate in 1982, not in the 70s. Well, but you probably had to earn most of it in the 70s. Correct, correct. <laughs> <I'm>, <laughs> that's absolutely right. I'm being a stickler. That's right. <laughs> well, we appreciate the the honesty and the upfront information. But there's there's even more than that. You were raising children at the time you were earning your doctorate. That's that's correct. I had actually started undergraduate college when I was thirty, um, and I had the three little kids, and um, and I was going to school, and I was separated from my husband, and I was I was trucking along. That seems to be a, a hard road to truck on back then. Because, well, let's be honest, you know, sexism was pretty rampant. It still is, but even back then it was just much worse. So how did you deal with being a woman going for an academic degree in an environment that wasn't exactly conducive to that? Well, it was a very, very special time because I had the support um, of Betty Friedan, of Gloria Steinem, of the whole women's movement. And I would, I would, you know, I would read the feminine mystique, and I would, I would listen to um, to Betty Friedan, and that would inspire me. And I was also in a consciousness raising group, which was a bunch of women who were supporting each other. It was a very exciting time. Do you find that that safety and numbers allowed you to move forward? Could you have done it on your own? I, I guess is the question. Could I, you know, I was so motivated after my mother died that I think I would have done anything that I had to do. Let's talk about your mother for a moment because she didn't just die. She died by suicide and that made a, a pretty profound impact on you. Correct. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Well, um, she had threatened suicide from the time I was a little girl and she would say, horrific things like you're going to be the death of me, you know, or you won't be happy until I'm six feet under. But it never really registered with me that she was serious until I found out when, um, when I was 19 that she had in fact made suicide attempts earlier in my life. And when she, when she unfortunately succeeded in finally killing herself, I thought, oh, my God, I don't want to end up like my mother, you know, and I'm in a pretty unhappy situation, and I better figure out how to get myself out of it quick. And so I did. Did you see yourself following any kind of path similar to your mom at that point? 
I was I was very unhappy in my marriage. I was very disappointed that I had not been able to go to college when I finished high school. I got married when I was 19. I felt very stuck. And I also, after she died, I had this, this tremendous desire to figure out a way to make her death meaningful. And the best way I could think of doing that was to change my own life. I like that answer very much. I want to ask, do you think that your mother would be proud of your accomplishments without sounding condescending? She was pretty self-involved, and so I don't know that she really would have been able to look outward and say, wow, look what my daughter accomplished. My father was able to do that, but I'm not sure my mother could have. Now, was your father alive when, when your mother passed away? Yes. And what was his reaction? How did, how did this sort of reverberate through the family other than you? I, you know, this makes me smile, and it, it's not something I should be laughing at, but it was so, it was so unbelievable. My mother had told me for, for years that my father, you know, ran around with other women. And she told me that my father had a mistress. And I said, Dad wouldn't do that. What are you talking about? That's not my father. And two weeks after she died, he ended up in the hospital with, with melanoma. And I went to visit him and he introduced me to his mistress. And I thought, oh, my God, my mother was right. That's wow. Yeah, I thought this was going to go in a completely different direction. How did how did you feel about that? I mean, here you were married and in in by your own admission not in a happy marriage. You didn't believe this about your parents' marriage and then you find out that your mother was correct, which sounds like it blew your mind a little bit. I I mean, what were you thinking? You know, I was in shock. I was in shock from her death. And then I was, uh, you know, I was further shocked by the fact that my father had cancer. And I, I thought, I can't lose both of them, you know. And so I just sort of, I sort of swallowed it. And it didn't really register until years later, you know, how incredibly selfish and inconsiderate he'd been. What about your kids? How old were they at the time? My youngest was one. My middle son was three, and my oldest son was six. Getting divorced in the 70s is not as common as it is now. How did you handle that? I mean, that alone, you know, had a social stigma to it. And as we know, suicide has a stigma to it. But specifically, going through the divorce process, was that traumatic for you? In the 70s, everybody was getting divorced. Really? It was one of the chapters in my book talks about, uh, you know, about that. I would call a friend down the block and I'd say, I'm really, you know, sorry, but happy to tell you that I separated from my husband. And she would say, you too? It was like an epidemic and it was very supported by the women's movement. So while it was traumatic in the sense that for the first time in my life, I was going to really be on my own. It was also, I felt so liberated that it was like I was coming out there fighting. I was ready to do it. That is absolutely incredible, and I didn't know that. I, I was not born until the end of 1976, so I don't remember the 70s in any way. So thank you for that education. I appreciate it. You're welcome. So you didn't want to talk about your age, but he's always willing to talk about how young he is. And how <laughs> I was going to say something, but uh -huh. I kept my mouth shut. <laughs> Say, stop bragging. <laughs> <laughs>
I do remember the 70s, but not a great deal about the early 70s. Uh, I was pretty young then, but, uh, and I'm trying to remember now just off the top of my head when it was that, that divorce was legalized in the States, and I don't really remember. I'm not sure I could tell you that either. Yeah, but, but I can but, tell you that it was happening, you know, left and right in the 70s. Yeah, it was, it was around that time, and, and the divorce rate just shot way the heck up, and it's been pretty much falling ever since. I remember the first time a friend of mine told me that his parents were divorcing, and this would have been probably in the late 70s. And it was a shock to me because I grew up in a really tiny town, as Gabe knows, because he was there too. And uh, it, yeah, it was weird. I, I didn't know how to react to that. I never remember a time that divorce wasn't commonplace. So I just... It assumed- wasn't commonplace in, in, my, in my grandmother's generation. You know, that was almost impossible. And it wasn't that commonplace in my mother's generation either, which I think was part of the reason that she ended up killing herself is because she couldn't figure out how to get out of the situation she was in. She just couldn't imagine being on her own. At this point, I'm afraid to say that, yeah, I remember that because I don't. That This is, this is very, very fascinating to me. So here you are in, in the 70s, you're going through a divorce and you decide to go to college and ultimately you became a doctor of psychology. Why did you choose that route? Of, of all the possible choices, why did you become a psychologist? Well, you know, I think given the environment I grew up in and all the strife in my home, that I was a psychologist before I even knew the word, you know, that I had to learn early on to sort of read the people around me and read the environment and know when to take cover. So it was a natural bent for me, I think, to, to choose that discipline. Oddly enough, I get that. That resonates with me quite a bit. Are you still practicing? Yes, I have. A one-day-a-week practice in Princeton and a one-day-a-week practice in Manhattan. When we say that you're a psychologist, of course, that, that encompasses so many things. What type of psychologist are you? Where did you spend the majority of your time practicing? I practice, as I said, I practice in Princeton. I see a lot of adults and some faculty members are part of my practice. I work with the general population and I have expertise, I think, in trauma. And I work a lot with gays and lesbians as part of my practice. Yeah, it's a general practice. I'm like a GP, but I'm a psychoanalyst. And that's an important point because I think in terms of the unconscious, I think in terms of the relationship between the analyst and the patient, and I don't believe that there are quick fixes. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp.com. Secure, convenient, and affordable online counseling. All counselors are licensed, accredited professionals. Anything you share is confidential. Schedule secure video or phone sessions, plus chat and text with your therapist whenever you feel it's needed. A month of online therapy often costs less than a single traditional face-to-face session. Go to betterhelp.com forward slash psychcentral and experience seven days of free therapy to see if online counseling is right for you. Betterhelp.com forward slash psychcentral. What was it like when you were in your classes? Did you face any kind of sexism from your professors or, or the male student body? I don't recall that, honestly. I went to classes at night because I was, had the kids to take care of. And so I, you know, I would do um, all my studies at night. And the, the population in the classes were mainly, were mainly adults. They weren't, you know, 19-year-olds. And I thought they were very respectful. There was some sexism in graduate school, but 
it wasn't anything that got in my way particularly. Oh, it doesn't sound like anything can get in your way. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> I was driven. After my mother died, I was really driven. So you said that you, you do a lot of work with gays and lesbians. Has that always been the case in your practice? Yes, I'm known as gay friendly. Up until recently, being open about being gay and lesbian is, was not as common. And so finding a gay friendly therapist was probably pretty difficult. The word kind of got around and people came to me, a lot of unfortunate situations where they were afraid to come out. And so the work with this therapeutic work would center around giving them strength to own their, you know, their personalities and be who they were and deal with their families. It's great that you can be so open about these things because you know, we hear a lot of the horror stories about people who want things to be the way they've always been. And I'm, I'm making air quotes, but you were sort of, you're edgy. I mean, there's, <laughs> you were edgy before edgy was a thing. You, you really have this belief that people should be allowed to live their own lives and you're, you exude that in, in what you do. And that's kind of what your book is about, right? You wrote a book called The Tell and it, it's about your life, Correct. It's about my life. It's a memoir. And actually, I didn't realize when I was writing it that, in fact, it was a coming-of-age story. It was when I was really kind of coming into my own as a girl, as a woman, as a mother. I didn't realize that was the book I was writing. And then it dawned on me that that coming-of-age takes a lifetime. One of the things that you say is that it's you chronicle your experience coming to age in a dysfunctional Jewish family during the 40s and 50s and your summer romance with a boy who grew up to be fashion designer, Ralph Lauren. Tell us right. all about that. <laughs> <laughs> well, what? <laughs> can you be more specific? <laughs> so I, the, the first question that I have, I guess, is, is it, it's interesting. You didn't say with Ralph Lauren. You said with a boy who became Ralph Lauren. You, that that wording is very interesting to me. Well, when I when I met Ralph, he was Ralphie Lipschitz. Gotcha. So he he wasn't Ralph Lauren yet, in he any sense Ralph of the Lauren word. Yet. <laughs> well, he was he was in his sensibility. There was an elegance about him and charisma about him. He exuded a confidence that sort of tipped us off that, that when he told me that someday he was going to grow up and he was changing his name from Lipschitz to Lauren and he was going to make a million dollars, I believed him. I didn't doubt for a minute that that was going to happen. And it didn't occur to you to hang on to him in some way? <laughs> I, would have, I would have hung on to him forever. <laughs> <laughs> But unfortunately, he dropped me. <laughs> he dropped you. Oh, no. Well, it was very clearly his loss. The, well, thank you. <laughs> you're very, very welcome. The, you also mentioned running a family acting business and that your son was in a Woody Allen movie. Is, is that correct? Talk to us a little bit That's about correct. that. correct. Well, so we go back to I'm separated from, from my husband. I am going to college. And I get presented with this offer for my sons to do television commercials because they were all redheaded and uh, they would look really good on color TV. I and love redheads. I, I, <laughs> being a redhead, I agree. 
<laughs> well, I I resisted because I was I you know I was worried that they would become little stars instead of little kids, and that I would turn into a stage mother because I. I adored the movies. I'm a, a big cinephile. I go to the movies whenever I can. And so I was afraid that I would get too caught up in it. But then I realized also that I didn't know how I was going to manage to put three kids through college on my own. And I had very little hope that my husband was going to really be able to help me with that. And so I thought, well, maybe we'll figure out how to do this. And I can still keep them kids and I can manage the whole thing and they could sock some money away. So I'm giving you a long answer. I, I but, love long answers. Please continue. Well, I started what we called the family biz. And what, I, what that meant was I sat them down and I said, you guys want to try this? And my oldest son was like gung-ho for it. My middle son couldn't have cared less. And my little guy said, sure, you know, what does he know? And I said, well, we're only going to do it one way. I said, we don't know who's going to have success and who isn't, but I do know that everybody's going to be inconvenienced. So we're going to pool whatever money you make and we're going to split it three ways. And it doesn't matter who gets most of the parts and who doesn't. It's going to belong to the three of you. So that was the structure of the family biz. And they started to do quite well. They got TV commercials. And then my middle son got an audition to play Little Albie Singer in, in Annie Hall. And as soon as he got called up to audition for that part, I knew he was going to get that part. He was, we'd always called him Little Woody Allen. He, you know, he, <laughs> was, he, he was a riot. He was funny. He, he was smart. And he was also a hypochondriac. So we knew he knew he was he was going to get the role, and he did. And then that movie ended up winning Best Picture. And that's ironic because you said he was one who couldn't have cared less. He couldn't have cared less, which made my oldest son nuts. <laughs> and then my my little guy ended up playing in Stardust Memories. Very cool. Aside from you know, world domination, fame and fortune, what do you really hope that this book accomplishes outside of your family? What do you want the average, you know, stranger who picks it up and reads it to know? I want them to know that there's humor and tragedy. And I want them to know that a goal in life is to create a coherent narrative that helps us understand where we were and where we are. I would like my life in some ways to be an inspiration for other people who have suffered a loss by suicide because it's unlike the grieving for, for a loss from suicide is unlike any other grief because the person who died was a victim, but also the perpetrator. And so your, your feelings are, are so entangled between anger and sadness and guilt. Well, we are near the end of our time. Thank you so much for being on the show. Where can we get the book? Where can we buy the tell? The launch date for the tell is the 5th of June, but it's available for pre-order now on Amazon. Amazon.com. Everything is there. That is every author's website. Right. <laughs> thank you so much. We are very excited for that book to come out. We thank you so much for being on the show. You have... 
you've, you've lived an absolutely wonderful life up until this point. We can't wait to see what you do next. And just thank you for joining us. We really, really appreciate it. Yes. Well, it was truly my pleasure. It really was. It was a great time. Thank you. You're very welcome. Well, everyone, thanks for tuning in. And remember, you can get one week of free, convenient, affordable, private online counseling, absolutely free, anytime, anywhere, by visiting betterhelp.com slash psychcentral. And we will see you all next week. Thank you for listening to The Psych Central Show. Please rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes or wherever you found this podcast. We encourage you to share our show on social media and with friends and family. Previous episodes can be found at psychcentral.com slash show. Psychcentral.com is the Internet's oldest and largest independent mental health website. Psych Central is overseen by Dr. John Grohall, a mental health expert and one of the pioneering leaders in online mental health. Our host, Gabe Howard, is an award-winning writer and speaker who travels nationally. You can find more information on Gabe at GabeHoward.com. Our co-host, Vincent M. Wales, is a trained suicide prevention crisis counselor and author of several award-winning speculative fiction novels. You can learn more about Vincent at VincentMWales.com. If you have feedback about the show, please email TalkBack at PsychCentral.com. There are few words more misunderstood and misused than OCD. Imagine having unwanted thoughts stuck in your head all day, no matter how hard you try to make them go away, and then having to pretend that everything is okay despite having to feel crippled inside. That's OCD. One in 40 people suffer from it globally, but there's hope. If you have OCD and need help, you can get better with specialized treatment. NoCD offers effective, affordable, and convenient treatment for OCD and is covered by many major insurance plans. Go to NoCD.com to learn more. That's NoCD.com.